Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to day 19 of the 7am novelist 50 day writing challenge first draft edition. I'm going to try to speak quickly this morning. It's Saturday morning. We've got our morning warriors, our weekend warriors with us this morning. Um, welcome to the live webinar. And some of you guys I know are later uh, listening on the podcast. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Uh, it's point of view week. And we've been talking about a mix of different points of views, their pros and cons. And today we're talking about how to possibly handle multiple points of views at once. So we have E.B. Moore and Mark Guerin to help us out. They were both novel incubator uh, students of mine uh, way back in the Grub, in Grub Street program. And uh, they have published since and, um, and they're both living in Maine. So that's kind of fun to have them both on at the same time. Uh, E.B. Moore is a metal sculptor turned poet. Then thanks the, to the Grub Street Novel Incubator program, she switched to being a novelist. Her first two books, Stones in the Road, which, Kirkus, which received a starred Kirkus Review, one of the best books of 2015, and her second book, An Unseemly Wife, are dark stories based on her family with Amish roots in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Her third novel, Loose in the Bright Fantastic, will come out in the fall of 2023, the story of gray-haired Maggie, who is thrilled to escape her children and embark on a quest to reclaim independence. Liz is a mother of three. She received fellowships from the McDowell Colony, Yaddo, and the Vermont Studio Center, and she lives with her partner in Scarborough, Maine. Mark Guerin is a 2014 graduate of Grub Street's Novel Incubator Program. He also has an MFA from Brandeis University and is a winner of the Illinois Arts Council Grant, the Mimi Steinberg Award for Playwriting, and Sigma Tau Delta's Eleanor B. North Poetry Award. Of course, those awards have to have the longest names possible. But so Mark has also got an amazing playwriting background, which is really fun to have him um, in the room. Um, his debut novel, you can see more from up here, was published in December 2019 and was selection of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club and was a semifinalist for the 2019 Faulkner Wisdom Novel Prize. He's a contributor to the novelist blog Dead Darlings and to Writer's Digest, and he is a playwright, copywriter, and journalist. Welcome, welcome both Mark and Liz. Um, okay, so talking about multiple points of views and handling multiple points of views in your book, um, let's start with Liz. What has been your experience doing this? Um, how have you gotten through this kind of difficult process of combining not only, both of these writers have combined not only points of views, but also timelines? Uh, so Liz, give us your wisdom. She's like, oh no. <laughs> Liz, you're still muted. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, um, point of view is one of those things the story seems to tell you, or at least me, what happens and, and how to go about it. And I had an idea on my first book uh, that I would have two points of view, uh, historical and the more current. And I worked away at that, and um, I just was having a hell of a time with uh, with the modern one. It just it wasn't coming together, and I was being very frustrated with it. But I wasn't listening to it, which I should have done. I should have listened to the book. Um, Can you talk more about that? What does that mean to you? Listen to the book because I love that. Um, because the story seems to actually tell you, or I think that feeling of you know, why isn't this working? Why doesn't it flow? And I couldn't understand why that was the case because I was, I was very uh, involved in both ends of that story. Um, and, but it turned out that they really were two separate books. Yeah. And so when I got to the incubator, um, they said, 
oh, no, that's that uh, modern part is not working. And so I had to chop the book in half, get rid of that and um, just set completely set it aside, which is um, what I did. And then in the second book, I thought, OK, I've learned my lesson. I'm not going to um, I'm going to go with with one point of view. And um, I started doing that and then realized it was this that was Stones in the Road about um, a boy running away from um, an, his abusive father at 11 and crossing the country on his own. And I realized that there had to be something um, there had to be something about home that was more than just his point of view. And so I got his mother's point of view of what was going on um, before he left and then what was going on after he left. Um, and so that it worked a whole lot better. So and I ended became up... an award-winning book. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I was, I was delighted with that. Uh, um, yeah. And yeah. so getting the feedback, listening to the feedback, but also just making the decision for yourself and learning, learning what the book is saying to you. Yeah. And, and being open to it, always being open to a change because um, it's much more interesting when the characters sometimes will tell you what to do about their own timeline. Um, and that's important to listen to, too. Right. So there's a lot of messages that come through that I never thought about before I started doing this. Yeah, excellent. That's, um, and then in the third, in the third, third book, right. Loose in the Bright and Fantastic, um, I've ended up with three. And yeah. that, again, that came about organically because the, um, the main character, Maggie, is has dementia. And so there needed to be more of a grounding. Uh, I couldn't just go with Maggie. And yeah. then her, grand, her five-year-old grandson insisted on having a point of view. Right. <laughs> and they were, they were very close. And so it, um, that worked out well. So there was Maggie, her daughter, and the five-year-old. But two point of views, so you've got a character with dementia and you have a child and you needed that third point of view of the mother right. um, because you need a kind of steadier reality. Right. Yes. You know, yeah, yeah. But they all have even, come, yep, sorry, yeah. go ahead. Her view of reality is also skewed though a little. Yeah. Everybody's, everybody's is, everybody has their own slant. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind That's, of, um, and, and they conflict all the time. And so it's kind of, uh, it was fun for me to write. I mean, this becomes, this reminds me of the Rashomon effect. Um, so the Rashomon story was um, originally a, a, a Japanese story that was, um, I think it was just called In the Grove. It wasn't actually called Rashomon. And it's, it was about a murder that happens in the grove. And you get the story of the murder um, from several different perspectives. Um, and so writers have continued to kind of go to that Rashomon effect. And the important thing is, is that you're not just, if you are repeating some scenes in different points of views, you, it, there has to be something new in the repetition because we don't want to read the same scene again. We'll feel like we're going backwards. We'll feel like we're treading water um, and the reader wants to always move forward. So you really have to give the reader something new with each perspective. If you are repeating scenes, you certainly don't have to do it repeat those scenes. But um, if you do to have that kind of crossover effect, because you really want to show that there's a different reality here, uh, make sure it really is truly different. All right, Mark, how about you? What's been your experience? <clears throat> well, my book is very much in the vein of a Rashomon kind of story. It, uh, and that's why I decided to use multiple points of view. Um, it centers around an incident um, about which uh, 
four different characters have very different points of view and they bring different moral and ethical um, perspectives to to the way they look at this incident. The, the, the incident gets videotaped and some of them see it in real time and some of them see the videotape and they all have different perspectives and sort of the fate of some of the characters depends on how people judge this videotape that they've seen. So, um, you know, when you're dealing with, with, with that kind of Rashomon effect, you want to understand why people are, are thinking the way they are. Why, why, where are they coming from where they have these different points of view? So I felt like I needed to get back into some of their background, into their inner lives, into their inner monologues to sort of explore why they had such differing points of view. So that's why I went with the multiple point of view. And, um, you know, that's where I am today. Excellent. Excellent. And that's interesting for you as a playwright, because you don't really have a chance to do that with playwriting. Do you or do you? No, I mean, playwriting is very, you know, it's third person objective. You know, you yeah. have you're basically you're, you're creating, making the uh, audience, the camera out there. They're looking at the what's going on on stage. And uh, as the playwright, you have to convey everything through the dialogue and through the, 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 the setting and, and, and uh, the action on stage. Um, and so when I'm write, writing with uh, third person with, 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 with this kind of style, I'm trying to convey uh, a variety of different kinds of, 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 of approaches to, to thinking about it. Right. Excellent. So lots of problems come with using multiple points of view. So, and when we talk about multiple points of views, um, it normally is you're doing like a first person serial. And again, that, that just means multiple first person points of views. And usually you break between the points of views by chapter um, or third person limited serial. And then sometimes people mix them up too. Um, and it will have a drop in first person or a drop in thir third person or even second person. Um, so you're making big jumps between the points of views. You also might be making jumps between timelines. And the other day, Waiki Wang said, you're only as good as your transitions, <laughs> which I love. So Liz, how do you move between, how do you handle all of these perspectives and timelines and how do you move between them? How did you go about approaching that? Uh, moving between them tended to be that you would get a, get a scene and then uh, I would switch. There, there would be something that would link the one chapter to the next chapter. Uh, so that the, the flow would be almost as if it was the same scene, except that it was slightly different. So like an idea or an image or just an, continuing the same scene? Um, an, an image or um, something that either the character was thinking about or um, a, uh, you know, going from when they're packing up, um, when the family is packing up the mother's house uh, in order to get her out of it, um, then it goes over to the, the point of view of the grandson who is fighting with them about packing up because he didn't think it was the right thing to do to get her out of the house, which right. they had to do. Good. So and that's so the kind of switch. Some consistency, right? Because you're yes. making a jump. And so you're, you're, you're giving the, read, the reader some consistency, even though you're also doing this giant move of, of jumping points of views. Mark, how about transitions for you? How did you go about that? Was it difficult? Not... I take sort of a safe route in that um, each of my point of view characters inhabits one chapter and I jump 
between chapter breaks. There's one chapter in my new book where I do have two point of view characters talking with each other and I wanted to get both their points of view. And so I do make sort of like line breaks with asterisks in between. So I make it really clear um, which point of view we're in. Um, so, I, you know, that way I don't really have to deal with, with pivot points and, and transitions in the way, you know, it's, it's just, you know, you know, if, and, you know, you start off a new paragraph generally using the person's name fairly soon to begin with so that you avoid any confusion. Right, right. Um, and, it, and it's really important to avoid that confusion and give your reader a little bit more help because I think we're so used to film. And we're so used to not having to deal with that narrator or, or not being aware that there is even a narrating force in film. And so when, you, when we think about, okay, the reader needs to know whose point of view we're in. And some writers might think, well, why? Because they're so used to watching <laughs> film. And yeah. in film, we, we aren't in particular um, perspective, um, but we need to know who are we supposed to emotionally pay attention to in this scene? And who is it going to matter to the most? Who are we supposed to invest in the most in this particular scene? And that's why if you jump point of views a lot, particularly if you move more towards the omniscient point of view, where you're making those jumps more quickly. Um, they're not as delineated between chapter and the voice is more consistent. <clears throat> um, it, can be, it can be very difficult because the reader just stops engaging with the story and with the characters. I don't know how people do it with when they're using first person. Um, and switching from first person, because boy, that voice has to be so clearly different from the other voices. Um, yes. And I, I, I have a hard time with first person to begin with. So I much yeah, prefer very close third and yes. sometimes even having the character talk back to the narrator a little yes. bit. Yeah, um, so I did that in Bottomland. I did actually did multiple first persons in both my two book, first two books, and um, I don't recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> I think you just you maybe you just want to shoot yourself in the head. I mean, I don't recommend it because you do have to you have to suffer over those voices so much. Um, Catherine in the chat is talking about the novel Pachinko, and I'm trying to remember. Um, she's saying it's considered multiple points of views as the author jumps around to different characters, but is written in close third person point of view. Um, was that omniscient or was that more of the serial point of view? Do you guys remember? I thought it was more, I, I feel like remember. it's more an omniscient point of view, a kind of, again, the difference with serial points of views and omniscient point of view is that you've got a kind of, um, a single voice, a, a single kind of overarching narrator that feels like he's, he or she or they are controlling the story and moving us in time, more of the storyteller's voice and the persona is stronger of the omniscient voice and you make those, those changes faster. Um, so it's that consistent omniscient voice that's carrying us from, from one to another that's actually making the pivots for us versus I think we more often see the third person limit point of view changing by chapter. Um, not omniscient, she says, but definitely close third but moves from different characters and chapters. So yeah, that's what she's doing, Catherine, yeah. Um, and I'm interested if I looked at that again, I do think she, when you're making those changes and you can do this omniscient, but you don't have to, when you're doing serial first or serial third, you do, the voice does alter a little bit towards the character. Um, not as much as you do in first person, but it can alter more towards the character. And that's part of the, um, that's part of the process. Um, okay. How about, so Liz, do you write one point of view at a time? to make sure that the arc in each point of view is clear or do you just follow the timeline or what have you done there? 
Well, I start following the timeline. I I do um, I actually do a line across the piece of paper and and put on the scenes here, 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 and here. Uh, but then once I get that all together, often that's not really the way it's going to work out the best. And so I put um, three by five cards, put the person's point of view, put a colored dot uh, on that person, and then start sliding the cards around on the table. So I have a scene for a card for every scene. And um, and that's how I that's how I go through it. Well, and I think for you, because you're also an artist, so you probably work really intuitively in terms of moving, which, where do you go to each scene? When do you move to the next point of view? I would expect. So, I, was, I was fascinated with when Kelly said it's like sculpture, yeah. um, because most people don't think that. That's what I think, since that's how I started. But it's the same kind of thing where you have to look all the way around uh, what you're working on. And I never thought of writing that way until I started doing it and um, was amazed to discover how much like sculpture it is. That I've is always thought it's a lot like sculpture too, because you're layering, especially, mm -hmm. you know, writing a first draft, you know, may take a few weeks, but I've spent four years <laughs> that I'm working on and it's just layers and layers and tweaking and so forth. So I, I, I've always thought of sculpture as one of the best metaphors for novel writing. Fantastic. Um, and so in each point of view and in each storyline does have to have its own arc. And you can think of that arc kind of intuitively, what does an arc mean to you? And we're gonna talk a lot about arcs and structure over the next few weeks. Um, but I think a lot of people when they're like, do I need to have, do I need to have an arc for each one of my points of views? If, if I'm really following that point of view a lot in the book and I say, yeah, I mean, that, that can be the real, headache, right? And where those arcs come together, um, if you're hitting a crisis point with a certain uh, arcs, and that, and also, and then the timelines each have the, their own arcs. So you're basically writing and layering several novels mm -hmm. at once. Liz, what do you think? I mean, it's very just, flat. If you don't, if you don't have that, if you don't have those arcs, the whole thing just goes flat, I think. Yeah. 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 yeah I, I interrupted your question. Yeah. yeah, no. Yeah. Mark, what do you, yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I when I first started writing my novel, two of my point of view characters didn't show up until halfway through the book. And I realized not only didn't they have a full arc, but the book was sort of imbalanced, which I think is another issue with multi-point of view books is how do you balance the appearance of characters? And I had to find a way, first of all, to introduce all four points of view within the first few chapters, mm -hmm. but also to make sure that they all had a starting point and ending point and an emotional change they went through. And uh, th that's part of the complexity is not just working with the plot, but making sure that each character goes through a certain amount of changes and has some emotional depth and depth to them um, that, that causes them to change. Right. And how did you decide how rapidly you moved between the points of views, Liz? Um, again, it's the sliding around of those cards that yeah. helped. Um, uh, in some ways, I, I got a lot of it together, all, all mashed together, yeah. uh, the points of view, uh, and then separating them out uh, with those cards. And that was the only way I could keep track of them because um, it is easy to to uh, to have them all glommed together in some way, and that just doesn't work in the in the end. And having those little dots on the cards makes it very clear um, if you've gotten sort of tipped over to one side more than the other. Yeah, and and so also 
as, as a practice to this, I would look at some of your favorite novels that do, do this multiple points of views and or multiple timelines or both um, and map them out. What are their arcs according to whichever sort of arc you like to follow? It could be, it could be the, the most traditional story here arc. It could be a, a particular shape that you're trying to create on the page. There's a, there's a lot of different arcs that have come down through our traditions. There's a lot of arcs that people talk about in terms of television and film these days. And then there's lots of people um, offering ideas for arcs that are trying to get away from all of that because they just don't, don't wanna follow that kind of more form, what feels formulaic to them. So look at your favorite novels, map out the arcs in terms of where's the heightened, heightened action um, in, in the novels, and you'll probably see they, they happen at slightly different moments, but they can begin to culminate at a certain point in the book towards the end. But there might be times in which a certain character's arc is carrying the book a little bit. Um, and then the problem is, is the reader gonna want to go to the other point of view? Mark, did you deal with that? Because sometimes we don't wanna read all these points of view. Sometimes we just wanna stay with one. Yeah, I think it depends upon how interactive the, the characters are and how dependent upon each other's stories they are. And I think, I mean, I think that's one of the interesting things about writing multiple point of view books that some of them can be very interactive where, and mine tends to be where the characters really, their, their, their lives intermesh and there's conflicts between them. But then you think of books like uh, uh, Jennifer Egan's books or uh, Elizabeth Strauss' Olive Kittredge, which is called uh, a, a story, linking stories. But those are in fact also multiple point of view books, but they just don't interact. The characters don't interact as much. So I think there are, are degrees to which characters can interact and that makes it more complex. And then there are degrees to which they can be sort of on their, basically running their own lives and having their own stories and just minimally interacting. And, and that, 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 actually can be an easier way to write a multiple point of view book because you don't have to have that, the, the, those plot elements and those cause effect elements and timelines interacting quite as, 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 as much as you would with uh, uh, a book where the characters really get together and, and conflict a lot. Yeah, and so you can, you, you can move very rapidly between them, you can move very slowly. So for my, my um, for Bottomland, my second novel, because I was having five first person points of views, I knew that I really wanted to concentrate them. And so I worked in blocks. And that's, that's um, again, I've, I've mentioned uh, Margot Livesey's The House on Fortune Street before, and she has four blocks of point of view. Um, you can that that we can get so involved in a point of view there that we don't want to move into the next point of view because we've been in that one point of view for a while so that can be problematic you really need something that takes the storyline through for me i had a question what happened to the disappeared sisters that was hopefully hopefully carrying the reader through um so you need to still have that a dramatic question or a plot line that carries you through all those points of views so, and I also always went back to Louise Erdrich's work. She does a lot of multiple first person points of views. One of my favorite novels of hers is an older novel called Tracks. And it's two first person points of views. They're very, very different from each other. And it's just a, it's just a beautifully done book. But Louise Erdrich does a lot of books like that. And then she also does third person limited serial as well. And then an old, old, um, favorite William Faulkner's As I Lay Dying has multiple first person points of views, including the dead mother <laughs> who's being <laughs> carried by her family. Um, 
And so we're being asked in the chat, Liz, what are some of your favorites or what are some of the books that you even went to to help you out? Like, how do I do this? Um, the quickening. Uh, I go back to, no, <laughs> and I'm not kidding you. The quickening was just, I was completely mesmerized by that book. And anytime I get stuck uh, and wonder, uh, you know, where am I going to go next? I just go back and read. Um, I just open it up anywhere. I just paid, it, I paid her to say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> others, others than that. <laughs> others than that. Um, we have in well, the chat, Jen someone mentioned uh, James McBride's Deacon King Kong. I've mentioned that book mm -hmm. multiple times already because I love that book. Liz, Jen other, uh, other Jenna, Jenna Blum's um, yes. first book. Uh, that's what got me going on the whole timeline thing of having having a historic and a and a current one. Yes, and so yes. that that was definitely a big influence. Mark, well, recently I've been reading a lot of multiple timeline books. Uh, Jonathan Franzen's Crossroads. You have five family members, and you get the story of each of their lives. Franzen uh, does that a lot, doesn't he? Yes, yeah, he does. Right, and Anthony Mara's Mercury Thirty theater presents which is a fascinating stories about uh, the, the 40s uh, Hollywood in the 40s and there's uh, immigrants trying to make it in the movie business and uh, 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 Italian characters trying to survive the war in, in Italy and uh, that's just that's just a fascinating book too and, and very diverse characters who do come to bit who do come together occasionally, but do have their own stories as well. So, uh, and and again, I, I loved uh, Jennifer Egan's Candy House, which uh, very very not not a lot of interaction between some of the the characters, but fascinating stories that do bounce off of each other in very interesting ways. Yeah, and so other ones that I've loved, really loved recently, uh, Maggie Shipstead's work. Maggie Shipstead, her most recent novel was The Great Circle, that got a lot of attention but she oftentimes, most of her books are written in multiple points of views. And she usually uses limited third, but she does move every now and then into first. Um, also, I, I've recommended this before, Tommy Orange's book, There, There, which got yeah, a lot of attention. A it's such a brilliant book. That book also opens with an amazing essay on kind of preparing you for the rest of the book. And most people would say, oh, you can't do that. You can't, you know, that sort of exposition or that sort of it's really kind of an angry voice that opens it up. And I just ate it up because it's just so yeah, brilliantly done. That's great. And then another book um, a lot of people have been talking about is Gabriel, Gabriel Zevin's Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. And so that yeah. I believe is three points of views. Um, and you're also in this kind of dream world of gaming. Um, so a lot of interesting things there. Cause I think we just don't, what do you, why do you think authors are moving in this direction? Cause I think, we just don't trust that singular point of view. Liz, what do you feel like authors are moving more in this direction? Are you just more interested in this multiple points of views or? Um, I've had a hard time sometimes with books that, that tell me too much about what's going on. I like a little bit of a hint about what's going on, but I, I tend to like getting right into the action very rapidly and then get to understand what those uh, themes are by what's happening actually in the book as opposed to being told. Yes, yes. Um, and so getting the different perspectives kind of puts the onus on the reader to figure out, okay, whose perspective is correct here? And of course, mm -hmm. that's a ridiculous question. No one perspective is going to be correct. It's probably the right. combination of them all. Um, mm -hmm. Mark, having that I... debate is nice. Having that uh, so the reader yes. can debate with somebody else who's reading it. 
And I do think Julie says um, in the chat, did multiple points of views and intersecting timelines lead TV or did TV lead literature in this? I don't know. Um, I think it is TV. I mean, we watch so yeah. much series television. You watch Succession and you have like every person in that book has, a, in, that, in that show has its own point of view. And you really wouldn't be able to grasp the, the mechanics of the dynamics of the relationships if you didn't see them alone once in a while or with their significant others and see what their devious uh, motivations were behind uh, behind what's going on in their interactions between the family. And there's lots of, 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 of series out there, White Lotus and, and Breaking Bad, and it's just about everything that's coming out these days has multiple points of view because people like that complexity and you're dealing with a very long form, right? You're dealing with yeah. multi-season shows where you have multiple characters and they really have to fill out that time somehow. So I think that's one of the reasons they do it. And it's one of the reasons that people are much more uh, accepting of it in literature. Yeah, yeah. And, and people are just suspicious, like there isn't just one story to be told. I think we're just exactly. highly, highly suspicious of the singular perspective because we know how limited that perspective is, how flawed that perspective is. And so we really are looking at, um, let's look at, try to create some reality, try to um, create the world that you're trying to put on the page from multiple perspectives because there's no other way because otherwise the characters are too locked in their own subjectivity. All right. We're going to have to go and get you guys to your writing desk. It's Saturday. You're not going to possibly want to do anything else but write, right? That's exactly what <laughs> right. you're going to do. So tomorrow, we're going to go back and talk. We talked about this before, but we're going to talk about the author-narrator-character merge idea uh, with Shuchi Saraswat and Karen Wilfred. Um, and they're both, both incredible writers, and they'll be approaching that idea from uh, different angles. Um, and we'll be hitting on it in a, in a different way than we talked about before, because it's really, really complex in terms of narrative distance, in terms of voice, and in terms of perspective. And if you support what we're doing, please share, follow, and rate our 7 a.m. Novelist podcast. You can listen to it on Substack, or you can listen to it on other podcast platforms. And you can find our full schedule at 7amnovelist.substack.com. EB, Liz, Mark, sorry guys, I just called uh, Thank you, thank you so much for being here and getting up early in the morning with us. All right, everybody, get to your desk and have a good writing day. Thank you. You go where it tells you to go, but you never wonder why there isn't nothing here at all.